0: I was brought up in quite a racist area in southeast London, a notorious kind of BNP stronghold. At the time, I didn't really feel like I was working towards something that was crystal clear, but my immediate reaction wasn't a reaction of, I love this place, I'm gonna stay here forever, and I think sometimes we can get hoodwinked into this fairy tale philosophy, like you know, if it's meant for you it's going to be perfect that isn't always the case it wasn't just about the money it wasn't just about the opportunity or the status it was more about okay what impact am i going to leave in this world there are systems that are unwritten processes and situations that are deeply detrimental to this concept this notion of equality diversity inclusion that need to be destroyed the work is hard the work is detailed the work is nuanced the work is intricate And welcome to Everyday Leadership, a podcast where you get
1: to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. Welcome back. To you another episode of Everyday Leadership. Um, as always, I have an amazing guest in the booth today. He is, even though he's a Liverpool fan, I'll forgive him for that. Um, he is an amazing man who's doing amazing things, which he's gonna share about. So, without further ado, I'm gonna ask my guest to introduce himself. But who are you? What are you about,
0: and then share what your name is with the audience. Who am I? Um, I am a husband, father of two, I lead an organization that is dedicated to equality, diversity and inclusion. We take a data-driven approach and really the idea is to maximize our impact, the impact that we have in the organizations we work with, the industries we work in, and also the people whose lives we we touch. Um, Really focusing on diversity and inclusion as a means to uplift us all I think when we focus on the things that make us different and also things that, that draw us together we as humans have a much richer existence a much richer um, life experience through um, I guess that shared shared creativity, shared vision um, yeah I think that that sums up as you as you mentioned I'm a Liverpool fan um, so I was born in Liverpool to Nigerian immigrants um, and spent most of my life in South East London, hence why I don't necessarily have the strongest Scouts accent. Um, children in South East London can be quite harsh, so I very quickly lost my accent. Um, and yeah, for the last eight or so years, I've been living in Birmingham. Um, so Birmingham's the base, uh, although we do work uh, across the UK and some bits internationally. Um, so yeah, my name is Mac Alomley. You have managed to live in
1: Liverpool with strong Scouts accent and avoided that. but you've lost ten years and avoided their accent and you just kept your London one like. What's the secret?
0: You know I actually did have a strong Scouts accent growing up. So when I when I was so I moved down to London when I was um five or six and I had a very strong Scouts accent. Um but yeah, as I said, kids can be cool. So I very quickly lost that. And then I think you reach an age where you just don't your your accent is consistent. So I think past the age of um eighteen, maybe twenty one, I think it's it's harder to change accent. Um and also I think <clears throat> interestingly, I'm I guess I'm not that exposed to like thick brummy accents on a regular basis, which is a weird thing to say, but um I guess most of my my life is kind of spent traveling up and down the country. So it's not just one accent that I'm kind of hearing on a consistent basis. It's, it's many. So I think that adds to it in terms of my ability to potentially avoid a my accent. But who knows? Who knows what the future holds? What was it like as
1: a young Mac, a teenage Mac? What were, I guess, your hopes, your desires, your dreams at that point in time?
0: A really good question. Um, interestingly, I've always wanted to do business. Um, I think as a, a young person growing up, I didn't necessarily know what that meant or what that looked like or what the parameters or spectrum of biz- business was. So I always knew that I wanted to be in, a, I guess, a leadership position. I, I quite like the idea of um, leading growing businesses. Um, operating in something because I've always been quite strategic I've always been um, quite a a thinker Um, so it really appealed to me in terms of being able to think about things strategize um, about situations and for those to bear fruit Um, but as a young man I didn't necessarily know where that could take me Um, and I guess at the time so in my teenage years I was a little bit disillusioned with the education system um for kind of context i was brought up in quite a racist area in southeast london it was like three miles from where stephen lawrence was killed it was um a notorious kind of bmp stronghold at the time which was just coming out of that um so the school had kind of racial tensions i went to a grammar school which added a different lens as well in terms of um socioeconomic differences and I didn't necessarily feel um like I belonged in that system. I didn't necessarily feel like I belonged in the school. Um I feel like the teachers went out of their way to make sure that I didn't feel like I belonged, which is, you know, an interesting perspective. But I I I, I always knew I, I like business, I enjoyed business, I enjoyed business studies, I enjoyed economics. Um, but I didn't necessarily know what the, the avenues or options were. So I, I did feel a little bit lost. I did feel like I, it was maybe a pipe dream that probably wasn't realistic at that stage. Were you ever encouraged even,
1: I know you said that teachers made you feel like you didn't belong. Did you get any encouragement from anywhere around economics, business or leadership in that period of time of your life?
0: that's a very deep question um I so definitely not from school um definitely definitely not from school um I just remember really like disliking all of my teachers and even the teachers that were all quote-unquote cool um just problems that for 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 no reason I think part of it was also a little bit of restlessness on my part like I didn't feel like school was majorly challenging I do not feel like it was majorly relevant in terms of some of the stuff that we were um, being asked to study I think encouragement for me came in sports so I was really into basketball when I was, I was growing up um I was part of a church group as well so I think I got a bit of encouragement from from church in terms of um, just being positive um and then I guess my, my parents were always supportive. Not sure if encouragement is that the word that I would use to describe it, but they were they were definitely supportive of um working hard and um you know committing to something and making something of myself. Um but yeah, I I guess supporting more than encouragement. I I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the the delineation is between those two terms, but it felt more like support than encouragement, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's and the reason why I haven't asked out because I was, I was curious, sometimes you listen to people talk
1: about some aspirations they have from a very young age, and they're so disillusioned that they don't ever pursue them. But you did, despite not necessarily having the best environment in in a school setting, you still kind of went down that path, and even like the career that you had was very much in like great organizations, and you were in positions of authority, you kind of worked your way through that. So there was something around it that kept that hope and dream alive and I guess I was trying to understand what was it that helped you keep on going despite what you had around you.
0: I think it's, it's it's really weird that hindsight I think is is a wonderful perspective but at the time I didn't really feel like I was working towards something that was crystal clear as that I, I knew that I enjoyed business, I knew that I wanted to be a business person or operate in in kind of a business environment but I didn't necessarily plot a chart to say you know year one i'm gonna do this year two i'm gonna do that I kind of um accidentally fell into it um and that sounds like a weird thing to say but um i think my relationship with the education system really discouraged me from i guess pursuing greatness through education so it's kind of just in education to essentially to keep my parents happy um I went to university. I could have got into a better university for undergrad than I did, but didn't necessarily didn't necessarily pursue it. Just wanted to go to university because it was the, the thing to do, rather than um, go out into the working world and get a job. Um, and then left university, not necessarily knowing what my next step was. It was also at the time of the economic crisis, so you know, two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Um, just seeing daily reports of companies going bust and, and people being laid off and you know I still vividly remember uh the news stories of people like walking out of canary warfare with, with boxes of their belongings having um been fired or, or being laid off and that was the environment so my biggest motivator at that time was I need a job because I don't want to be unemployed and there were all kinds of stories about people that had left university with degrees and, you know, struggled for two or three years to, to find jobs. I also had, um, quite a few friends that were pursuing teaching and things like that, because at the time teaching was like a guaranteed job if you had a degree. Um, so it was more, you know, rather than having an intentional plan to say, you know, I want to be in business or want to do X, Y, and Z, it was more a case of I don't I don't want to be unemployed. Um so let me get a job and let me work really hard at trying to secure my future. Um and it wasn't necessarily about passion. Um but long story short, I, I ended up working in the energy sector for a small consultancy. And I remember them calling me for an interview and, and you know, asking you know, what do you enjoy about the energy sector? And I was like, I had to make something up on the spot and just, just like trying to black hole it but I had no, no intention of, of getting a job in energy. There was no grand plan to say that this is the route for me. It was more a case of I just don't want to be unemployed. Um, and then long story short, I started working in the energy sector. And it was probably only after a year and a half, maybe two years, that I really started to enjoy it. And I started to understand how I could how I could apply myself and also how I could lean on some of the things that I really enjoyed in terms of economics and business and, and how that kind of manifested in the, the energy sector at the time. Uh, I think I was deeply fortunate to join a company that essentially allowed me a certain amount of freedom, um, allowed me to explore my interests, allowed, allowed me to, um, really do a lot of things that I enjoyed doing. Um, and then over time, that that kind of love and appreciation for the energy sector grew. And I think as a result, I was more inspired to progress and more inspired to actually pursue something which at the time looked like a, a career in energy. It's amazing how um,
1: I get to start to think around when people are going into roles and they're like, I'm not quite sure what it is I, I want to do. But how much, a lot of times that can just be like, it seems like a red flag. But actually there is a school of thought that says, explore. Explore and see what you're good at. Explore and see what sticks. Explore to learn what you like and what you don't like. And if you go into somewhere or go into a space or a job that you don't like, then at least you've got some data points as opposed to having absolutely nothing right now or you can figure out like, actually there are things about this that I do like, and then you go down that path and then it becomes something of a career. So that journey of, you say, yeah, accidentally fell into, it," I was like, actually that, the accident is quite a good way of people moving nowadays who want to be intentional and it doesn't sound like it, but it's
0: quite key. It's an interesting one though, because I think that um, Mm -hmm. one of the things that I've observed probably more so about this generation than any previous generation is I feel like we're quick to cancel things, quick to write things off. Whereas when I think about my my first year, maybe two years in the energy sector, like it wasn't deeply enjoyable. It wasn't kind of an immediate love at first sight um, interaction. Um, I, I remember not necessarily enjoying it. I remember thinking like, six months in what am i doing here you know how long have i got um got left here essentially in terms of what i want to do long term um i did see it as a bit of a stop cap but i think there's something to be said about sticking with it and and really um pushing through what is what isn't necessarily immediately comfortable because it wasn't comfortable at, at the start Um, it was only after a while that that love grew and and after a while that I saw the different avenues and the the kind of length and breadth of what I could do in that space Um, but my immediate reaction wasn't a reaction of I love this place I'm going to stay here forever and I think sometimes we can get hoodwinked into this fairy tale philosophy like you know if it's meant for you it's going to be perfect and you know day one and, and day 10 are going to be absolutely amazing and You'll just go from there. It's like actually, that isn't always the case. Sometimes you have to put it in the graph. Sometimes you have to stick with it when it gets hard. You did that for 10 years. And like I said, you worked at, you
1: know, all the messages like KPG National Grid, for our capital, all Capital, that kind of stuff. And this is working with governments as well. What changed about that environment for you to decide to go down a completely different path?
0: It's probably more relevant to say what didn't change. So I don't think there was a a fundamental change like towards the end of my career, I still enjoyed the work I did, I still enjoyed the energy sector, I I still felt it was an environment where I could apply myself. The things that didn't change was the the level of diversity in senior leadership. Um, There was also a perception and Although I personally progressed, it was generally true that people from underrepresented backgrounds didn't progress as quickly as their, their peers. And even when I contextualized my progression, yes, I progressed. Did I progress as quickly as my peers that happened to be private school educated, white middle-aged, middle-class, middle such a normative, um, the answer's no. Um, so it wasn't necessarily what changed, I think, The energy sector is quite a slow moving beast. Um, things generally don't change that quickly. And diversity and inclusion was one of those things that didn't change. Um, and that really, I guess inspired me to some extent, but made it more urgent in my mind in terms of what work needed to be done here. Um, At the time, I was looking around at kind of diversity and inclusion um, as a discipline and, and not necessarily feeling that there was anything transformative about what was being done. So we were in a space of kind of annual unconscious bias training, and it was mandatory a couple of organizations I worked for, and it was mandatory to the point that people rolled their eyes and kind of clicked through the you yeah, know, the the e modules or whatever as fast as possible. Um, didn't retain any information, didn't see it as something that was adding value, it was kind of like, um, I have to do this again. Um, that kind of mindset to to equality, diversity, inclusion. It's like um so so that that wasn't changing. And I think from my perspective, I definitely looked at it from a point of privilege. You know, I was privileged enough to be in a relatively senior position. I was privileged enough to be financially secure and stable, privileged enough to feel comfortable to do something a little bit different and, and take a little bit more of a risk with, um, you know, with my career and, and kind of what, what it was that I wanted to do. And I guess I needed more of a challenge. And as I said, I did enjoy the industry sector. I enjoyed um, the work, the industry um i felt that i could apply myself there but i also felt like i needed more it wasn't just about the money it wasn't just about kind of the you know the opportunity or the status it was more about okay what impact am i going to leave on this world and you know, I, I don't at the time and still don't believe i was created to sit at a desk and um do the work i was doing um which has it was good work, but it wasn't... I don't think it was changing things um, in society. I me mean,
1: circle back to a point you made earlier around. You were not progressing um, in comparison to your white colleagues. In that space, when you see that happening around you, what did you do before you moved on? What did you do? How did you react? How did you cope? because i think that's an element that also is not talked about a lot we talk about a high level but it's always interesting to hear that was it like being in a rhyme and seeing that happening around you and yeah rather me putting words to your mouth
0: what was that like for you at that period of time that's a really good question not one that i've necessarily thought about much recently (laughs) um but i remember it just being like deeply frustrating um i remember specific occasions where everybody can see that i was um at a level below where i should have been potentially two levels below where i should have been um my manager could see it my you know my line manager's peers could see it just everybody could see it um and it's a really weird and i'm not sure if it's like a british thing or or not but is a really weird environment where everyone can see something is common sense to some extent and still it doesn't get acted on upon and still there is no change. And for me, again, it was just just frustrating in terms of like what, what needs to be done here to make sure that I am progressed or promoted. Um and I start I guess what my the type of person I am I always look for uh, mentors or people that have kind of been where where I want to get to so I did have conversations with people that had managed to progress that um, were also from underrepresented backgrounds and I really hated what I was told and kind of um, again just to summarise it some of the messaging that I was told was things like you know you have to play the game and you have to um, Network and and I've got nothing against networking. I think network networking is great, but there's certain times when your work should speak for itself. And I think in some environments, you can get sucked into playing this game of I'm not sure if I'm allowed to use this terminology, but kissing bum um, to say that's an, <laughs> a lot of people are in this world where they just put themselves in environments and take on personas that are. are, are Deeply misaligned with who they are, in order to get to a certain position. And um, when I was told that, in terms of you know play the game, go for drinks, and network, and schmooze, and all of that, I withdrew, and I was like, "I'm I'm not going to do that because my work speaks for itself." And if I'm in an environment where being excellent at your job isn't enough to get promoted. I don't want to be in that environment because if you're saying that people that deliver mediocre outputs but are networking and kissing bum and and doing all of this extra stuff that isn't on my job description, my job description doesn't say laugh at your your line manager's jokes, that's not a thing Um, but I'm ticking all of the boxes that are on my job description um, going over and above in terms of what my job description is but you're telling me that's not enough, but it's all of this stuff that isn't in my job description that I'm going to be judged on and, and what my progression hangs off. Um, it's ridiculous. And, and that's the kind of, that was kind of a turning point for me in terms of there are systems that are unwritten processes and situations that are deeply detrimental to, you know, this concept, this notion of equality, diversity, and inclusion that need to be destroyed because ultimately that's why we end up in situations where people are exploiting nepotism to win contracts and exploiting um you know relationships and kind of networks that their parents have built up just to get in certain rooms and certain conversations in certain positions and those are the things that keep people from underrepresented backgrounds accessing the same opportunities so that was kind of the, the one of the factors that, that led to me kind of pushing back and, and resisting to some extent. If you haven't already, can you please follow
1: the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's the podcast worth listening to, which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, Look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. Sounded like very much so. Rather than compliant, which is you, you get that you get the compliance and the simulation you move in the opposite direction and it kind of spots something in you and be like, "This needs to change. I need to do something about it." And obviously you eventually left and you started the equal group, which is which is amazing. But it was an area, DNI is an area like it's right now, where people can say to you sometimes, oh, there's a lot of firms doing this, it's oversaturated, and blah 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 blah. There's so many different statements after that. Did you ever think, My gosh, I'm stepping into an area that there are a lot more people already doing this? Is this gonna be worth it i'm coming from a completely different background to this approach it's not like i'm even coming from a hr perspective so did you have all those fears around creating a company around this topic despite the fact that you're very purposeful and passionate about it
0: another really good question i think it's um interestingly i never really had that specific fear um i think i Always understood the value that I, I can enter certain situations and conversations I think diversity and inclusion was one of those areas that I, I guess when I joined this space um, I perceived there to be a lot of individuals doing great work in this space there were also some individuals that okay I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna win any friends by saying that just weren't doing good work um, there were people that had been operating in this space for 10 15 20 years and just year on year recycled the same presentations and the same clips the same training um and it was just very dull and you know i spoke before about kind of the the perception that people had around equality diversity inclusion and it wasn't generally a positive perception it was mainly um you know political correctness gone mad and people rolling their eyes and oh, why do I have to do this? It's, it's, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's nonsense. Um, and I think part of that was to do with the way that diversity inclusion was being done. Um, when we entered this space, we were very intentional about being data-led and data-driven. Um, and that was something that we didn't see anybody really focusing on uh, at the time. And then also, I've, I've also always had this... Um, I guess this drive to create something that hasn't been created before. So when we think about the diversity and inclusion spaces, you know, to your point, there are a lot of practitioners operating in this space, but it's always kind of companies with between one and five people. And they, whilst, you know, there is space for those individuals and those organizations, there comes a, a kind of tipping point where you know, the, the work is real. And, you know, if you're dealing with organizations with 10, 15, 20, 50,000 members of staff and you've got a kind of organizations with a global footprint, um, not to say that smaller organizations can't help, but it's also a case of, of scale, you know, to what extent can a three-person organization deal with a multinational and all of the things that encompass good equality, diversity and inclusion work, that the work is hard, the work is detailed, the work is nuanced, the work is intricate, and that needs a level of sophistication about the solutions that you you put in place for those organisations. And that is something that I don't think the, um, the space, the environment of equality, diversity and inclusion has really dealt with in a meaningful way. So for me the vision was always about creating something that was significant enough to really match the scale of other professional services organizations when you think about um accountancy practices or you think about other management consultancy disciplines um there's always a, a significance and seriousness about the the solutions that are embedded and we don't necessarily see that from a diversity and inclusion perspective so that that's the space that that we are really interested in operating in. For someone who runs a data driven organization,
1: the stats, especially right now in what, twenty twenty-three, are not great. In fact, I I was doing some work on this recently looking at post Judge Floyd in particular, where it seems like a lot of things have actually gone backwards. How do you you personally keep hope alive and keep inspiring your people in your team. And more importantly, just keep on doing the work where it doesn't feel like the data is so ensuring that stuff is happening, but with the reality that we do know it is. So how do you kind of balance both those two things?
0: I think one of the things about data that people don't necessarily understand is that the kind of the nuance behind it. And when we talk about data, we talk about both the quantitative and qualitative. Um, and interestingly, you will often see in organizations the quantitative gets it's quantitative in terms of numbers who, who's in certain positions what levels um you know what backgrounds they come from etc the quantitative may get worse before it gets better whereas the qualitative should if you know if the work's being done in the correct banner should improve um year on year so when we talk about the qualitative it's more about people's experiences how they perceive certain things and if you embed effective equality, diversity and inclusion practices and disciplines and you know the infrastructure that is needed to support long term um progress, typically you'll find that people's experiences dramatically improve overnight. Um and then the quantitative can take some time to to to, to reconcile itself because naturally people with um who have already promoted people have kind of other circumstances such as um, parental leave or or any other thing that may take them out of the workplace at any given time. Um, So that's kind of how we contextualize this work in terms of the data side of things. Um, I think it's also important to really think about impact. So as an organization we've been focusing on theories of change and really getting better at communicating what this work looks like and um, the commitment the organizations need to make in order to, to really see the benefits of this. This isn't something that you can do a one-day workshop on and then the next week you're a perfect organization. This is years and years and years of intentional deep work, years and years and years of uprooting ideologies and you know, systemic issues that are deeply embedded from every part of the employee life cycle from recruitment to, you know, retention and eventual exit. So there are a lot of things that need to change in terms of leadership mindsets, in terms of the way that we manage people, the way that we look at performance, the way that we see value. Um, and that is stuff that takes years and years and years to get right. Um, so a lot of the work that we do is, is working with organizations and helping them to understand this journey. Um, but also acting as support to say you're not in this journey alone. This is not something that you and your HR team just have to grapple with in isolation. This for us is work that needs to be socialized across organizations, across industries. There's plenty of opportunity to collaborate as well. So we're hopefully leading the guard on on ensuring that industries have every opportunity to collaborate um, and make sure that we are maximizing cases of best practice, and hopefully minimising um, issues of people feeling uh, victimised or feeling um, hard done by from any particular circumstance they're going through at work. Does that mean that you have to be very
1: intentional then about who you decide to work with? Because just based on what you said, you need to work with people who understand that, where it's not the people who are just going to be for Come in and do a workshop and yay, or... We want this impact done straight away it's going to be more around being discerning about cultures and organizations and leaders that you partner up with because it's it's a longer time commitment
0: yeah and i think i've i've um i've been on a journey with this um personally to to be honest i feel, feel in the early days i was really adamant and kind of had a hard line to say if anybody comes and asks us to just do a workshop or just do some training Um, the answers just always no. So the first two years probably we turned down every request for um, just workshop or just training because our perception was that, and specifically unconscious bias training, because that was kind of the buzzword back in the day. So everybody wanted unconscious bias training and saw it as a tick in the box to say, yes, we've done unconscious bias training, therefore our organization is, is equipped to deal with equality, diversity, inclusion. That is absolute. I don't get how with the training is. It's absolutely a fallacy in terms of the impact that it has. So um, in the early days, we turned on a lot of work, um, which was hard to do because we weren't necessarily in a, you know, financially in a great place. Um, however, over the years, I've come to realize that there's a lot of nuance that sits behind kind of what people come to you with as, as kind of their the first request. And a lot of our, our kind of onboarding or initial consultation process at the moment is about unpicking that to say, okay, you've come to us to ask for training, or you've come to us to ask for a workshop. What is it that you're trying to achieve? Um, what are the things that you've tried historically? What are you looking to do in the future? And really be a little bit more collaborative around how we arrive at solutions. Um, a workshop or training may not be the best starting point for every organization. But for some organizations that actually might be you know that might be the way that they build buy-in that might be the way that they socialize some of what they're trying to do in terms of bringing um, a wider kind of colleague base along on that journey with them so i've, I've softened my approach a little bit um, and as an, organiza- as an organization we've still softened our approach slightly Um and now we're a little bit more collaborative we're a little bit more conversational in um, really understanding what people need and and what that looks like, but also how they articulate that.
1: So It sounds very much like a, it's been a journey for you as well, for you and your organization coming in and being able to recognize the fact that actually there are, for us to meet people where they are, there might be a different approach and different lens of looking at this and analyzing it. It doesn't mean that obviously you're gonna say yes to everyone. But you can actually use that initial request as a way of filtering and having a conversation with them to really assess what's really going on for them and then take it from there rather than just being like you're not serious and just kind of dismissing people. Um which to be fair, I and I'm definitely guilty of it. I've done that in the past as well. And I had to go through that journey but I actually you know what is behind what people are asking for. Let's let's talk about it and, and stick into that. I'm curious as an entrepreneur, um, as a founder of organization, who we'll have people reporting to you and you're responsible for, what are some of the key lessons that you have learned going on that on that journey?
0: I continue to learn every day. Um, I think leadership, growing a business is like the single hardest thing I've done, um, is that true? M- maybe being a parent as well. But, um, I'm 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 new into parenthood. I was about to say like
1: parenting and, parenting and marriage are up there.
0: So yeah, top three is top three, top three, three things hardest things I've done. Um, but I think in terms of lessons, it's really, you know, people say this every day, and and kind of I think to some extent it gets said, But I'm I'm gonna say it again that you know that you cannot underestimate the importance of having good people on your team and and keeping good people um and i think the areas where i've developed most are really in in trying to bring the best out of people um and trying to support people in their own journeys i think sometimes as entrepreneurs or business leaders we can be quite selfish and, and think about us and think about our businesses and not necessarily understand that the human journey and the human journeys you know multiple human journeys that happen within the parameters of our business whether that's from employees or colleagues right down to to kind of the clients we work with and and the 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 workforce that that it kind of operates on that side so um from my perspective it's really learning more about those human interactions learning more about the way that I need to support my team members and um, I guess understanding individuals and this sounds like a really weird thing to say but just everybody has their own journey everybody comes into certain situations with their own baggage and their own um, circumstances, complexities, nuances and people change on a day-to-day basis so What worked for John or Jerry yesterday may not work for John or Jerry today. may not be um, relevant or um, appropriate for John or Jerry tomorrow or next week. So it's really a continual journey of learning um, who people are, what they need at any given time. And I think it's such a privilege to get to see people grow and go on that journey. as an organization, you know, uh, uh, there's it's it's really quite a unique experience to see somebody from the their very first interview or even their application all the way to two, three, four years down the line, having worked with you and seeing what they've turned into and kind of um, the role that you've played in, in their journey. And I think it's such a and maybe there are some parallels in terms of parenthood or, or marriage because I feel like they're, they're all about that that human journey and that, that journey of development um, but for me I guess the, the other linked point is learning more about the link between how I look after myself and also how I'm then able to show up for the people that I work with whether that's internally or externally and I think Sometimes you can get lost in that hustle mentality, or or kind of this um, aspirations to drive change, and you look at change as an external endeavor and forget about the internal work that needs to happen to make sure that you're changing and that you're being the best version of you in order to enact that change on an external level. The two
1: what the point that you mentioned around um, one around people you surround yourself with how do you hire the best people around you people who are going to be good for you people who not only buy into what you say at a surface level but actually means a lot to them at a deeper level
0: I think there's something to be said about understanding people first and foremost but then also understanding their motivators so I think understanding people first and foremost um, hopefully should put you in a mindset to understand um, what they're bringing to the table and not just from a skills and competence perspective but also from a you know where are they in life Um, you know what are the things that they're grappling with or dealing with on a day-to-day basis Um, and then understanding their motivators in terms of and this is gonna sound really like transactional, but I feel like most people show up to work for something, whether that's financial reward, whether that's um, impact. And and we we probably skew heavily to people that are driven by impact. Um, But there are all all kinds of different motivators. So I think understanding people's motivators to understand what it is that they're looking for in your organization and that may Be a temporary thing that they're looking for so you know whether they need finances for now or next year or the year after or whether they need status or some kind of of, you know validation whatever it is that they're looking for Um, just being really clear in terms of how you fit into their journey Um, and I guess the, the kind of third point to that it's uh, just being really clear about expectations so and again this this may sound transactional but it's not supposed supposed to be um but i think that the more you can understand what their expectations are of you and vice versa the easier it is to develop a working relationship that is effective um so that's something that i am really trying to to focus on and hone in on um for at least the next year and past that, you um, know, That's not
1: transactional at all. I think that's super important. It's one of the major areas that I've definitely seen where relationships go wrong and whether you're a founder running a business or with your big corporate, there's always that misunderstanding of what does this person want from me and vice versa. And without both of you having that clarity... It's always going to be miscommunication and confusion. And therefore, you might think you're doing your best work and then you'd be like, what are you doing? And other person be like, I don't feel appreciated. But actually, it's just down to the fact that you're actually spending your time and doing something which is not aligned to what um, the person might be in charge of you, what kind of wants. So taking the time to do that and be very, very clear is, is so critical. And it's an area that a lot of people, especially a lot of um, leaders and founders, miss doing there's like yeah we know why we're here we know why they're hired they know why what we do so I just let them go it was like no like even though it might seem like it's hand it's super important to have that that clarity so i definitely don't think it's transactional at all i think it's very very purposeful and that's what kind of great leaders um tend to do so what well, don't actually stepping into that for sure and you mentioned around the fact that looking after your, looking after yourself and 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 all of that to making sure that that's um self-care is quite key for you which is great i guess i'm curious how does in your pursuit of your business and the pursuit of looking after yourself and the your pursuit of living a great life for either for you as a husband or you as as a father
0: how do you actually then measure what success it looks like in the overall i think that's an, an amazing question i think it's, it's one that i asked myself at the start of last year or the year before um and there's a quote by i think it's by Maya Angelou, but i'm not sure so don't quote me too too close on to it but it's success is um lacking what you do lacking how you do lacking who you deal with um, and then there's another dimension in terms of lacking where you do it. Um, and yeah, I think for me, like success isn't necessarily a destination, it's part of the journey. And I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine yesterday, and we were really just reflecting on, on that to say like, that the journey is super important. I think some people um, forego their happiness in the moment for pursuit of something. You know, vision that that they're brought into that may or may not materialize a couple of years from now and I I personally don't see that as success I think um, success has to be in the now because the the now is all we have you know tomorrow isn't promised we may or may not reach our goals and expectations and and objectives Um, but this the one thing that we have is you know how we feel in this present moment and it's something that I guess I've really focused on more so in the last couple of years in terms of whenever whenever I'm doing anything. So whether that's team meetings or um, public speaking, panels, delivering workshops whatever it is, I need to prioritize myself because if, if I feel good in the moment, whatever I'm delivering just feels that much more impactful. It feels that much more effective. Whether whether it is or not is is you know for other people to 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 ascertain, but for me, I feel better knowing that I am coming from a place of positivity and knowing that I am enjoying what I'm doing. And I think, uh, you know, I think a great question for people to ask themselves is, you know, am I enjoying this? And on on every level, and you know, even to the I was gonna say something first, I'm sure I say. But um we started doing HelloFresh and there are other subscription services or whatever available. Um we started doing HelloFresh the other day and there was a meal that we cooked and I was like, This is not nice, I'm I'm not enjoying this. Um and so I ended up like not eating it. Um but I think that for me is is kinda of the point of life, you know, it's not everything that we, we do that we'll enjoy but having the agency to say I'm not enjoying this therefore I'm going to do something else or I am enjoying this so I'm going to make sure that I continue to do things like this that bring me happiness, that bring me joy um, I think that's super important and I do realise that's a gross contradiction to what I said earlier on in the podcast when I said that actually sometimes we have to sit in that discomfort in order to understand what it is we like or, or don't like about certain situations um, so yeah a little bit of contradiction there but at the same time, I think they both have their, their places, right?
1: This podcast is sponsored by Mindset Shift, a leadership development company focused on helping you lead from the inside out not from the outside in. We work one-on-one with senior leaders in organisations. We work directly with HR and other parts of organisations to help you create an authentic culture where your words and your values and your actions on the line will help you to navigate the complexity and the chaos that you'll experience day in and day out. And we have a couple of openings for the one-to-one coaching this year, but that's something that you're interested in. If you want to work with a coach who can help you navigate this year to ensure that you're intentional to take your leadership skills. Personally and professionally to the next level, send me an email at hello at mindsetshift.co.uk or just go to website www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Now, right, let's get back into today's episode. That just speaks to the complexity of what makes us human. It's not one size fits all for every single scenario. There are scenarios where it's like, I do I'm, 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 I'm not feeling that at all. And there's some scenarios where you need to just sit in it and get the lessons from it. And it's interesting that you, when you talk about some of the work you're doing, um, you talk about yourself and everything else. In my head, I'm like, Max, a very, you're a very private person, but you're also out there. So when we talk about, you talk about um, having two polarizing things. How are you both private and at the same out there? Because... Whether it's events, you sit on a number of different boards, you're having conversations with clients and NBD BD work, all that kind of stuff. So you're you're about people know you, you're, you're well known, but at the same time you're very private. So I'm like, how have you managed to do do both both things?
0: It's a really weird one. I think it's it's also perception because I a lot of people say to me things like, yeah, I've been following you on the tin and I'm, I'm I know like. I know how busy you are, etc., etc. And like LinkedIn sees maybe less than five percent of of what I do. Um, But your question in terms of like, I'm I'm a deeply introverted person, I guess as as kind of first and foremost. So I tend to be quite picky in terms of where I spend my time um, and my energy. Um, But. I guess i credit the equal group in the journey that we've been on in terms of the last five years and having to be comfortable being out there and having to be comfortable on stages or on platforms or on recordings whatever it is um i've learned to love it i I think when i was in the energy sector i very rarely did like panels or, or presentations or even trainings or workshops um, it's only kind of towards the last two or three years that I, I really started to to hone my skills as um, a facilitator or a, a panellist um, but with the Equal Group as the place, it's coming from a place where actually nobody knows their brand, nobody knows you in this space, you know, in the energy sector I had my networks and had, you know, a decade long career to kind of to, to leverage in this space, I was brand new nobody knew me um, and I had to kind of start from ground zero and a lot of that was networking, being comfortable, having conversations with people, being comfortable in rooms where, um, I didn't know anyone. Um, and I guess over time that's just become a way of life and I've not really stopped doing any of that because I've actually started to enjoy, um, you know, having conversations with new people and meeting different people from different sectors and and experiencing kind of things from different viewpoints and stances um but as you said i am a deeply private person i think um part of that feeds into protecting my time to some extent so making sure that i do have time for um you know the family make sure that i do have time to just be alone sometimes and, and just kind of reflect. I'm quite a reflective person. So I try to carve out as much time as possible to reflect. But then there's also something to be said about the journey. So when I am up and down the country and I'm traveling that, you know, the time on the train or the time in the car gives me time to really be who who I, I guess I think I am naturally, which is a quite a private person. So, um, I, I think I've managed to curate my life in such a way that I can kind of have the best of both worlds. So even when I am speaking on panels or speaking at events, I tend to try as much as possible to ring fence my time before so I can have that time of being a private person, then show up and, and do the the more public stuff. Um, and then I can kind of withdraw to to being back to my private self, if that makes sense. It does, perfect sense. How do you define leadership? I think I just define leadership as being able to do what needs to be done, despite the circumstances. And then there's also an angle there in terms of inspiring other people through your actions and free your words. Um. So yeah, I think do what needs to be done, but also inspiring others to to also do what needs to be done so i think there's um a certain extent to which i believe that leaders leaders make leaders so if you're a leader and nobody is inspired by your actions or nobody is inspired to do something that hasn't been done um then i don't think you're a real leader who inspires you that's a good one um who inspires me I'm inspired by my, my kids actually, um, I think the, their perspective, like my son is just under two and a half now and he just loves everything, so much energy, so much enthusiasm, loves learning, loves um, demonstrating what he's learned, so he's one of these people that just absorbs information, if you could tell him something, he'll absorb it and then like a week later he'll come back and tell you like, for, what what he's learned and Um, I think that, that innocence and that purity is, is, um, really quite inspiring to see every day as a a new opportunity, um, having bags of energy, having naps during the day, that that's just, uh, an inspirational endeavor. Um, and then I guess in, in the the wider scheme of things, I'm deeply inspired by Asata Shakur. So... She was on. This can sound weird as well, but I don't know. Um, she was on America's Most Wanted list for for decades. Um, but she was part of the, the Black Panther movement. Um, she was a real activist and advocate for for Black people's rights. Um, deeply inspired by Malcolm X. Deeply inspired by, um, Steam Jobs. He's he's an absolute legend. Um, you, you lost me there. You lost me there. <laughs> so yeah, there's there's a couple there. I'll take your back.
1: I guess let me end on this. Actually, what's the the biggest change that you see happen to you, either as a father or as a husband?
0: I think um, I think in both contexts, it's it's compassion. I feel like there's, there have been times in my life when I potentially haven't been very compassionate, um, but there's something deeply, um, moving about your, your family and and people that you're connected to, um, experiencing things. And I I say compassion, I think when you, when you talk about compassion, sometimes it can have negative connotations or something, um, negative attached to it. but I think that whole mindset of kind of <clears throat> embracing embracing the world through somebody else's eyes, I think is, is kind of what I mean by compassion. Compassion is not the right word. Um, but there are things that my kids like to do that I don't really like to do. There are things that my wife likes to do that I don't really like to do. But I am still willing to do them because of that attachment and kind of my the the sense to which I've brought into their experience of life and and I think those are the things that move me outside of my comfort zone and kind of encourage me to be a better person or experience things from from a different perspective because I think sometimes we can be either slightly self-absorbed or we can really just deeply buy into our perspective and our perception. And I think there are a a lot of parallels between that and the work that we do in terms of equality, diversity, inclusion, like the more you can see things through somebody else's perspective, the better equipped you are to change things that need to be changed. Even if you don't necessarily have that as your fundamental lived experience, Um, understanding other people's lived experience and understanding how they may perceive certain situations should inspire you to to move and to create a a world where other people can enjoy their lived experience as much as you enjoy yours I love
1: that i was I was still to see that correlation of personal growth flowing into the work that people do especially when it's purposeful work and that's why I love when you like we actually see things from the lens of my wife and kids and step into their world where they're like, I don't really want to do this, but actually, you know what, it wasn't that bad or it was a different experience, but at least you've got that perspective now, which you wouldn't naturally have by shutting things down and obviously that naturally flows into the work that you do um, because that's so so relevant. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much for sharing your your journey and more importantly around the work that you are in your organization are doing. It is very different. Um it's very intentional and purposeful. And the approach that you have, um, it's definitely needed. So obviously naturally I'm encouraging other organizations who really want to do some meaningful work around DEI the for their organizations, for their cultures, who want to see some real change, measurable change, both qualitative and quantitative, you know where to go to. So all the information around mac and um, the Equal group obviously will be available in the show notes and check him out for the few posts that he might have aligned around the different things he's doing as well um but thank you very much for coming today, today
0: thank you so much for me back Mina. i really enjoyed the, the conversation so um yeah credit to you and the team for this platform as well thank you very much this is every leadership we'll see you next week
1: while you're still recovering from that amazing conversation let me give you a quick preview of what we got coming up next week. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out.
0: That will get you so far. Like
1: That will take you to a certain point of success and actualizing results in the world until it starts to eat you up. And then you need a new set of tools if you want to continue to, to grow and ascend and create. And, and that really is the journey, I think, of of continuously assessing whether or not the tools that I'm currently working with are aligned with next iteration of me and who I'm here to be yeah and then letting go of the old ones and being being in the void of the person that you were and not quite who you're becoming and being in faith in that space of like non identity